the officer patrolling Washington Street noticed a vehicle turning on a no turn on red sign. She was close to hitting a vehicle when the officer pulled her over. He smelled a strong odor, which was marijuana. What you're listening to is something called teen court. All 50 states use this as an alternative to the traditional juvenile justice system. It's only for kids arrested for minor infractions. Teenagers are tried by their peers, and the outcome may involve writing an apology to the person they hurt, spending time on community service, or paying back money for a stolen item. The defendant in this case was pulled over after nearly causing an accident. The cop found marijuana in her pockets, and there was a bong in the back seat of the car she was driving. We'll refer to the teenage defendant here as Jay. Juvenile court proceedings and records are private to protect young offenders from stigma and discrimination. There's a lot more to her story, which we'll hear later. West Virginia's teen court program highlights a bigger problem and a worrying trend. Nationally, the rate of incarcerated juveniles is dropping steadily. But in West Virginia, it's been on the rise. Why is that? Are programs like teen court doing enough? This episode, we'll hear from adults who support this alternative approach to justice. And we'll hear from teens who have experienced the juvenile justice system. From West Virginia Public Broadcasting and PRX, this is Us and Them, the show that tells the stories about the things that divide us and sometimes bring us together. I'm Trey Kay. The Mountain State has been bucking a national trend. That's what first caught my attention about the number of West Virginia juveniles in the justice system. One of the places that has studied this is the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy in Charleston, West Virginia. Ted Bettner spent 13 years as its executive director. Back in 2017, Bettner and the center published a report titled Improving Juvenile Justice in West Virginia. Well, we looked into it because West Virginia at that time, and I believe still is, was a huge outlier in the number of juveniles that are in residential placement, which can include staff secure facilities, basically jails. Uh, And it was alarming to us that West Virginia was such an outlier. Why was West Virginia locking up more kids than any other state in the country? And we wanted to figure out why. And we knew the legislature at the same time was looking at the issue and was interested in pursuing some reforms in that regard. So that's why we looked at it. One number that stood out to me from that report, back in 2013, West Virginia confined juveniles at a rate of 510 per 10,000. By contrast, Massachusetts, with nearly four times the population of West Virginia, incarcerated just 393 young people per 10,000. Bettner says comparing West Virginia to other states can be difficult. West Virginia has like this twin problem of not only kids with, that are getting sent to these staff securities jails, but also this huge foster care crisis was happening right when this was taking place. And what we found, and we found stories of people, of juveniles, of kids who were sent to these facilities just because they didn't have a home to go to. And I can't think of anything sadder than sending somebody that's 14 years old and very vulnerable and obviously, you know, has some problems that they're dealing with, otherwise they probably wouldn't be there, and sending them to a jail-like facility because they can't find a home, a place for them to go. And to me, that was just deeply immoral. It was just terrible policy. Have you been to some of these places? Have you gone in to, to look and see what it's like? Yeah, we toured the uh, center that's on Quarter G. Like, I think it's in between Boone County and Lincoln County, the Coon Center. And, you know, we toured that like five or six years ago. Bettner is talking about the Donald R. Coon Juvenile Center in Julian, West Virginia. The facility provides residential care to high-risk teens before their trial and as maximum security detention 
if they serve a sentence. People that are very nice, you know, the kids were there and they have like a little basketball court, but you know, there's barbed wire going all around, you know, just like the outside, just like any other prison facility. I mean, just walking into the facility in West Virginia, the staff secure juvenile jail facility, I think as an ACE just walking in there. An ACE or A-C-E stands for Adverse Childhood Experience. When you go in there and you see that, you know, there's, you know, there's several staff people per kid in there. You understand why this is costing $120,000 a year per kid. But you also see that they're staying in these very tiny rooms or jail cells that are extremely austere, you know, metal beds and just, just not a warm, comfortable environment. You know, and it's just, this is to me borderline just neglect and abuse at one level especially for kids that haven't done anything to violently harm anybody. So the kids who are there they haven't done some type of, of, of violent crime. They haven't murdered anybody, raped anybody, they, they, armed robbery or anything like that. The majority of them have not, but there are, don't get me wrong, there are some kids that have killed people. There are kids there, you know, there are at different times, there are kids that have committed, you know, those types of crimes. But That is not the majority of the kids that are in these facilities at the time when I went there. If you look at the body of research that has dealt with what happens to kids that go into these facilities when they get out, you know, what we know from the body of research on this topic is that they don't end up better. So what, why would you keep doing something knowing that 60, 70, 80% of the time it doesn't work? And did you hear Bettner's reference to the cost of such incarceration? $120,000 a year. More than enough for a top-tier college education. Are there solutions? Are there alternatives? Are there things that the state could be doing that could spend their money more wisely, that there's evidence or statistics that support that another approach might be better and more effective? In Illinois, and Ohio has dramatically reduced the number of kids in these facilities over the last decade. And one of the ways they did that is that they incentivized local governments, especially circuit court judges, to do that. And they've said, okay, this is how much you spent on incarcerating juveniles last year. We'll give you that money next year. But if you spend less and take money and participate in this program, you know, we'll actually give the county back what you don't, what you don't spend this year. So if you tell a, you know, a circuit judge or a county commissioner, like, hey, we can increase our county budget by a couple hundred thousand if we don't send so many kids to these expensive jails, but instead invest that money in local services through this grant program, we can save the county hundreds of thousands of dollars. Do you want to do it? Absolutely. That sounds like a great idea. And what these places have found is they're actually saving money and they're reinvesting some of that back into the communities. Money can play an important role in the equation here. Ted Bettner says counties do not pay the bill when offenders are sentenced to jail. It's the state. And he says that if the counties were more responsible for paying the cost of incarceration, you'd see some major changes. Bettner also says a barrier to new therapeutic programs is that they can be expensive to start. One of the primary players in the state's approach to juvenile justice is a statewide commission. The West Virginia Supreme Court appoints its members. My name is Tom Ewing. I'm a circuit court judge in Fayette County, West Virginia. As a circuit court judge, I hear cases involving criminal law, abuse and neglect, Ewing was appointed to the Juvenile Justice Commission two years ago. He played a role in the recent reforms to the juvenile justice system. I got introduced to the the juvenile justice system from the abuse and neglect standpoint. To be honest with you, I never had a JD hearing or JS or any of those other type of juvenile cases prior to becoming a judge. And when you say that, I just want to make sure I understand. So a, a JD, that's a juvenile delinquency hearing. That's like where somebody who is under the age of 18, you know, commits some type of crime. And a, and a JS hearing would be a situation where some young person, they're in the 
the sites of, of law enforcement because they're failing to attend school or, or they have run away or something like that. Yeah, that's correct. Juvenile delinquency would involve a misdemeanor or felony crime if that offense was committed by an adult. Ewing says back in 2014, there was a complete overhaul of the state's juvenile delinquency status legislation. It prohibited out-of-home placements for juveniles who commit a nonviolent misdemeanor, and it created community-based reporting centers. There have been more recent changes, too. The issue identified by the Supreme Court in the case of State versus J.C. in 2018, it said there was no comprehensive juvenile competency process in the state of West Virginia to determine whether a juvenile was competent to be adjudicated or stand trial. There, is an, a, a, there was a very developed adult competency that parts of that adult statute allowed for evaluations to be done on juveniles, but it didn't say well, what happens if a juvenile is declared incompetent. Do we use the adult statutes to determine how to handle that after, afterwards? So there was a gap that ultimately Supreme Court said was very problematic and directed the legislature to do something about it. Children under the age of 14 are different developmentally and mentally than children, older children and adults. And so there had to be a, there should be a different process in place that, that clearly allows for the developmental differences and disabilities and, and things that impact children to be considered as part of whether that child is competent to essentially stand trial. I mean, just think about a child who's 10 years old and having to understand what it means to, to cross-examine witnesses and, and move forward with the trial by jury as part of your adjudication. Ewing says the new law presumes a child under the age of 14 is not competent without an evaluation. The clear import of all the changes was that this juvenile justice system is a rehabilitative process. It's not a punitive process. It has a completely different function than the criminal justice system for adults. And so being in a position to understand that, you know, the ultimately the goal of, of juvenile justice is to put the, the juvenile in a position to change, address the behavior, improve, address situations in the home with services. And hopefully the child coming out of that case being in a better position than the child was when the case started. What are some of the reasons that juveniles you know, come before judges like you? What you see most frequently from my three years, what I've most seen most frequently is possession of drugs, potential selling of drugs and domestic and fights with, with parents or fights with grownups in the, in the home or family. And I've also seen some reports that show that, that one of the reasons many young people in West Virginia are introduced into the criminal justice system is because of truancy. Is that a significant problem with young people failing to attend school? From my perspective is it comes up more in abuse and neglect cases that the child's not going to school or the parents aren't making the child go to school or helping the child get to school when those families are in complete disarray and, and not functioning properly because of drug use or domestic violence or whatever it is. Ewing tells me the pandemic has been particularly rough on kids caught up in the juvenile system. As COVID has forced students to learn remotely, families in crisis have faced serious challenges. It impacted them negatively because they didn't have the financial resources to um, have you know, good internet maybe, or you know, they, they, it was harder for them to be able to function in that remote world than, than be able, being able to get their children to, to school. So I mean, I think you know, overall, at some point, the state made the decision that the remote learning was not really working for everyone. And, and so I can see where the children in the populations we were dealing with, that that remote learning was even a, a, was an additional burden on those families to try to educate that, that child. In situations when we're not dealing with the pandemic and social distancing and remote learning and all that stuff, I've seen reports that suggest that in West Virginia, one, some, some places have tried to deal with the truancy issue by getting law enforcement involved. 
posting some police officers in middle middle school and high schools. Are you familiar with that? Is that something that's working in your county? Our county, for example, in the last five years has placed resource officers in in the the, the high school at Oak Hill and the high school at Millen Trail. And I think, you know, that seems to be a, be a positive development. I think it's been received well by the, the Board of Education folks, obviously, and the, the, the school folks. But the, the, the resource officers also become a resource for, for the students, someone that they can talk to, someone that they can, hey, this is going on at home. How do, I, how, how do I handle this? Obviously, they deal with most of the teen court things that we deal with come from the resource officer are, are vaping. And, you know, they've got to deal with those type of, type of issues going on at the schools. But I, I think that the resource officers have a much broader impact on the students than just the law enforcement. You've cited some of the positives to, to having these resource officers embedded in the schools. I guess some of the negative impact would be that these officers might be called on by, by faculty in the school to intervene in, in situations, minor infractions. Maybe the kids are drinking alcohol or, or smoking weed or, or something like that. And that these are usually things that are handled by parents or the school administration. But by having the resource officer there, that, that in, in many ways, that is something that draws them into the, the juvenile justice system. Well, well, just to be honest with you, though, we've reached a point in society where the court is having to deal with the problems that typically parents and the parents dealt with and families dealt with in generations before. So now those issues aren't some of those things aren't being addressed by the parents, um, aren't being addressed and it's put a burden on the school and maybe the schools aren't in a position or have the capacity to fully deal with those issues. And you know, when it escalates to, to law enforcement, the juvenile justice system set up, you know, the way I, I look at it, set up to intervene early in those situations to help address that problem before it becomes a bigger problem. There are many people in the juvenile justice system who say early intervention is essential. Cindy Largent-Hill says it's also important that the system make adjustments to be successful with kids. I am the director of the Division of Children and Juvenile Services within the Administrative Office of the Supreme Court. The state created the Division of Children and Juvenile Services in 2008. It assists with the court's initiatives to improve the outcomes for children and families involved in abuse and neglect, child welfare, and juvenile justice. I think sometimes we get lost in the fact that they are children. And back when I started, we didn't know as much about that whole cognitive development and brain development. And there were scared straight programs and they were kind of the thing back in the late 90s and early 80s. And we learned that that was not the way to do. That was not going to deter criminalistic or I don't even want to call it criminalistic. That was not going to deter bad behavior. While we were talking, Largent Hill said something that made me think. Many of the children the juvenile justice system sees are not criminals. They have committed a crime or an infraction, but the majority of them do not have criminal ways of thinking. We need to remember that they're minors, they're juveniles, they're children. And most of them, when you talk to them, they made very bad decisions many times over. But if you really as they say, peel back the onion and look at where were the support systems, where was their guidance, what were their circumstances before that happened. There are a few juveniles in the system that need to be in the system. They definitely have some ways of thinking that risk on public safety and possibly their own safety. But that is such a small minority of who we see in the juvenile justice system. I mentioned the research I'd seen on this and how Ted Bettner said that just walking into a facility like the Donald R. Kuhn Juvenile Center can be an adverse event in a child's life. I agree that being removed from your family 
and being put in a facility that's not your family is definitely going to affect the emotional status of a child. I won't take away from that. However, sometimes as adults in the system, we have to make very difficult decisions. I think one of the things that West Virginia strives to do is look at what's in that child's best interest. And sometimes in doing that, we don't look as good on paper, if that makes sense. We don't look as good with the numbers. But I think we have to step back and we're responsible. This is our responsibility to step back and look at that child. And if that child really doesn't need to be in that facility, then we have to work really hard to figure out where is the best facility. It's very hard to put a child in a psychiatric facility, but sometimes that is the best place for them. So we, you have to really look at it child by child. You don't, you don't want a cookie cutter system. Um, as we talked the other day, we want a unique system. I think there are close to 7,000 children in foster care in West Virginia. We almost need 7,000 different ways to do business if we're really going to do what's in the child's best interest. The way that we count people who are in, in the juvenile justice system is, is it may be different than other states. Do you feel that if people are looking from the outside and, and you know saying, wow, look at this high number, do, do you think that, that in many ways West Virginia is doing a good job? Or does West Virginia's juvenile justice system have flaws and, and that it needs to improve? I think if we assume that we're always doing a good job, then we won't do the best job we can do. As I said, working with children and families has to be a fluid system. The way we worked with them two or three years ago cannot be the way we work with children and families now or two or three years from now. And that was even before the pandemic, I felt that way. I definitely feel that way now. So I think we need to always think we're not doing the best job we can do. Because then we'll get complacent and we won't, we won't adjust, massage, move the system in the direction it needs to. Largent Hill says just looking at the numbers doesn't tell the whole story of the state's juvenile system. There are two agencies that focus on West Virginia's children. In the cases of child welfare, it's the Department of Health and Human Resources, or DHHR. And the Division of Juvenile Services handles the criminal cases. Now, keep in mind, if you are in the custody of the Bureau of Juvenile Services, you are inside one of those facilities. And those are the, quote, correctional facilities for children or youth in West Virginia. We kind of count all of those kids together. When you enter the system, you may be a foster child and you're counting in DHHR's numbers. But you're, if then if you go into a BJS facility, then you are counted in their system. So I think part of the way we do business in West Virginia, we set ourselves up for a higher number than actually exists, if that makes sense. The numbers are real. It's just that sometimes the, we're counting the same kid in both groups. Looks like we're rolling here. One young person who knows West Virginia's juvenile system firsthand is 19-year-old Jared Mitchell. Mitchell lives on this busy Brooklyn street in New York. We first learned about him from a lawsuit filed against West Virginia in 2019. Mitchell is one of 12 plaintiffs in a case that argued the state violated the rights of children by failing to plan appropriately for juveniles in state custody. Lawyers from a number of child advocacy organizations wanted the case to be considered a class action lawsuit on behalf of nearly 7,000 children in West Virginia's foster care system. My name is Jared Mitchell, and I'm a home attendant for senior citizens. Mitchell lives with his aunt in Brooklyn. I asked him what brought him to the Coon Center. Originally, I had got put there because they couldn't find a shelter or a, a group home to put me in because every, everything was full at the time. So originally, the first time, it was 
because I had nowhere else to go and it was just for a couple days. And then after that, I got put in a placement called Stepping Stones and I was, um, there was a group home for boys and I was there for approximately a year and a a year and a couple months before I had ran away the first time. And then when I had ran away is when they put me back in the Coon Center, DRK. I ran away because I don't, honestly, it was kind of like a, a, a split second decision. I was, me and a staff member, we was arguing. We didn't agree. We wasn't on the same page. And he was working that day. And I just, I couldn't, I didn't feel like being around him. <laughs> so I ran away. It, it, it's a pretty, pretty dumb idea, I know, but. As a child, Mitchell grew up in Staten Island, New York. His mother died in 2011 when Mitchell was only nine years old. And my father, unfortunately, has been on drugs my whole life. So I never really got to, I, I know my father. I've met him multiple times. I've lived with him. But I never got the chance to get close and have that father-son type bond with him. Um, so due to my mother's passing, my father signed us over to his sister's custody, which is my aunt. He signed me and my sisters over to, to her custody. And then they were, they were doing drugs. They were mentally abusive, sometimes physically abusive. And it had got reported to the school and social workers that came to the school took us, and then from there we had went into foster homes because they said that our home wasn't safe. That was in Boone County, West Virginia. That's when Mitchell spent his first week at the Coon Center. But after Mitchell ran away from a group boys' home, he was sent back to the juvenile center. He says that's because of a false sexual offense on his record. Jared Mitchell says he was never charged with such a crime and passed a polygraph test saying he was never involved in any sexual offense. But it was on his record. Was it that sexual allegation that, that made it so you wouldn't go into foster care or a group home situation because they were saying, oh, th- this, this kid has you know, sex abuse in his, in his background and so therefore he, he's not eligible to, for this situation. We need to put him in a situation where he can go to school but he's not gonna harm people. Was that your situation? That's exactly was my situation. Jared Mitchell spent close to three years at West Virginia's juvenile facility, the Coon Center. He says it was absolutely an adverse childhood experience. First off, there's there's a fence covered with barbed wire and then wrapped with razor wire that you have to get through. You got to get through that fence and then go into the two steel doors. And then once you go there, the staff, the, the COs, they immediately tell you to strip naked. You got to take all your clothes off, everything, socks, underwear, shirt, everything. And then they, they take you in a the shower. They make they spray you with this chemical and they say it gets rid of lice or whatever, but it, it smells just like vinegar. And then you can immediately start hearing kids screaming, kids acting out. If you get admitted at nighttime, you're, you're definitely going to hear kids getting restrained. You're going to hear screaming, someone screaming medical, which medical is the nurses. When someone screams medical, it means they want the nurses to come. Like medical help. The walls, they're concrete, but they're thin. You can hear it through the walls. So they, they, it echoes. It, it's all echoing. You can hear everything. It, it's like it's like you walk in and you're in an insane asylum. Mitchell says he was in the Coon Center with kids who committed a wide range of offenses. I was there with kids that had got credit card fraud, that had got larceny, grand larceny, grand theft auto. I was there with kids that had got locked up due to a gang situation. Mitchell says the men on his father's side of the family all spent time at the Coon Center, which he sometimes refers to as DRK. Once the correction officers, or COs as he calls them, found out who his relatives were, Mitchell felt like they would take their frustrations out on him. So if, for example, if they didn't like something my uncle had did back in the day, they would bring it up and I would get punished for it. How has that experience stayed with you as you live your life now? 
it, it took away a part of my childhood that I never learned how to be how to be a child. I never learned how to, you know, live a true childhood. It separates me from other kids because while I was being locked up, other kids they learned how to, you know, socially talk to people, how to be a social person, how to be a people's person. I never really learned that due to that situation. But I will say that I do think about that situation a lot, even though it's done and over with. I still think about it. And it, it just lets me know that no matter what happens, I can make it through it. Do you feel any shame that your childhood was as it was? That, that there's there a stigma that you were a kid who was raised in juvie? I feel shame of it because when, say when I meet a new person that becomes my future friend or my future girlfriend or whatever, whatever the case may be. Say I, I run into them and, you know, we get to know each other. I, I They tell me a little bit about, about their life and, you know, their family. I can't do that. When it comes to me and telling people about my life, I tell them I've been locked up my whole life. And most people look at me as if, oh, he's a criminal. I'm not about to mess with him. And that's not the case. What you've told me is that you had a, a father and uncles who were in the system. And so in many ways, they'd say, ah, well, he comes from a family, you know, like, like father, like son. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Do, do you hear that? I've heard it a lot in the, the courtroom that I was in, Boone County Courthouse. The judge there, Judge Thompson, he was also the judge for my uncles and my brother that had got locked up into DRK before me. And it was actually a time where I was in DRK with my brother. And they knew we was related, and they still put us together. So when it came to that, they just looked at me, oh, you're, you're his son, you're his, you're his nephew, you're his brother, you're, you're the same. You're all family, you're all guys, you do the same stuff. And it's not the case. You can say clearly that's not the case? It's I mean, not the case. Yes, you're my uncle. Yes, you're my brother. But we're not the same. And I've been judged my whole life based off of y'all's actions instead of people listening to mine. So you're on a new path? I'm on a whole different path. Jared Mitchell says he's matured a lot. When he got out of the Coon Center, he wasn't given any resources to get started on the outside. But he's managed to find work. His cousin hooked him up with a job as a home care assistant for the elderly. That's a job where he needs to demonstrate qualities of responsibility and trustworthiness. I wondered if the fact that he had spent time in juvenile detention might have been an issue with his getting this job. He says it wasn't, and that's because his record was expunged when he turned 18. The lawsuit that Mitchell's involved in was recently dismissed. The judge says since six of the 12 plaintiffs involved, including Jared Mitchell, are no longer in the foster care system, they don't have a current claim to base a lawsuit on. Lawyers representing the plaintiffs say they plan to appeal. When we come back from a quick break, we'll learn about West Virginia's teen court and see how it's affecting young people across the state. I'm Trey Kay, and this is Us and Them. Our show is supported in part by the West Virginia Humanities Council and the CRC Foundation. Music lifts us up and brings us together, even when we can't get together in person. Mountain Stage brings you live performances on the air, online, and in our podcast. They remind you how it feels to be in a live audience listening to live music. This is Larry Gross, host of Mountain Stage. Find a link to our stations and our podcast online at mountainstage.org.
I'm Trey Kay, and from PRX and West Virginia Public Broadcasting, you're listening to Us and Them. The Mountain State's teen court program is a unique judicial diversion system. Teenagers try and sentence other teen defendants for misdemeanor offenses. The process gives the juvenile justice system an alternative that's based on a framework of rehabilitation rather than incarceration. Greg Puckett is the executive director of a nonprofit called Community Connections. He started the teen court program in Mercer County 20 years ago. This way, those young people get to be held accountable by a jury of their peers. We want our communities to be stronger, but you've got to let the, the youth lead. So it's youth-led, adult-guided. And the only person that is an adult in the courtroom at the time where a young person comes in and that you know goes through a case is either the, the coordinator for the teen court program and or the judge who is a licensed practicing attorney or a retired circuit court judge in the state of West Virginia. The prosecuting attorney, defense attorney are all youth. They've been trained through the system on how to do the deliberation process. And the jury, teenagers, they're also, they're all volunteers, even the bailiff and the clerk. How did teen court start? Teen court started back in the uh, mid 90s. Then it really um, sort of grew through the um, National Youth Court Center, which was an initiative of the Office of Juvenile Justice. I want to say it was 92 it started, but then it grew. And by the time we got a hold of it in 2001, I think there were two or three in West Virginia. I want to say there were over a thousand nationwide. And the most successful courts were in more populated areas because you could pull from a, a broader population. It's one of those things where it had its it had its peak, it had a lot of funding to help guide and direct these courts as a an alternative sentencing type program. And then over the years, you know, it's kind of had its highs and lows. And again, it it too is on the rebound because they found that, you know, you need these juvenile programs to not only try to deal with the the adjudication of a young person who goes through teen court, but you also have to understand that the greatest component of that is the ability to give back to your community. It's that volunteer aspect of whoever's going to be, you know, participating. How does a teen court session work? Can you just like kind of walk me through that? Traditionally, the the easiest model is to flow through your court system you have to have authorization from your circuit court judge within the county. The circuit court judge doesn't buy into it. It's virtually almost impossible to get teen court installed within that county. But if you work through the juvenile probation system and you have a probation officer that looks at a particular case and says, hey, this is relatively minor. We can pass this along. Send it down to the teen court coordinator. And then that coordinator meets with the kid. If, if the kid says, hey, I'm going to plead no contest to this, then they go in front of the jury of their peers. And then they, the jury argues the, the severity of the sentence, not the guilt or innocence of that individual. Puckett explains the jury at teen court does not focus on guilt or innocence. It's designed to hold juveniles accountable for their crimes. Many teen courts employ innovative sanctions for young offenders in place of a sentence to serve. Keeping kids out of the court systems isn't the only benefit of teen court. It's also a lot cheaper for families. Now, if you go through traditional court, it's going to cost you a few hundred bucks, maybe a thousand dollars or more. If you go through teen court, generally there's an administrative fee, and we try to make sure the young person pays that themselves. It's usually about a $50 fee. So if you're a parent, you're going to pay thousands some dollars or you get $50. Which one are you going to do? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Jefferson County Teen Court. My name is Patrick Cradiville, and I'll be serving as a teen court judge this evening. The teen court program in Jefferson County is run by Rhonda Lehman. She's been working at this since 2013. She was conducting the teen court session we heard at the very beginning of this episode. That case involved a teen court defendant named Jay. And remember, we're not using any of their names since juvenile court proceedings are not public to protect their privacy. No, I did not see the car. I did look both ways to be safe about the situation. It's dark. I did not see the car. I didn't see any cars. So I turned right because I seen. Layman says the cases that are typically sent to teen court vary. Since the pandemic, she's seen a lot of teens arrested for drug possession, shoplifting, and property damage. By state law in West Virginia, teen courts, you give the kids either 16 to 40 hours of community service. That's up to the jury. They have to serve themselves as a juror at least twice. 
And we've added that you have a mandatory essay based on whatever offense. And that essay, say if you are in simple possession of marijuana, then you'd have to do an essay on the effects of marijuana on the growing brain, 750 words. And so every crime has its own essay. They have to pay restitution. If there's any property damage, the victim is made whole. And so this is a chance to kind of correct course. Correct. West Virginia used to have the highest incarceration rate of juveniles in 1996 in the country. Well, I think as, as recently as 2017, it still had the highest rate. I, be, I believe that. But, but now that's for a different reason. In those days, it was more because we didn't have community programs to help get kids back on the right track. There was no one diverting them often. And so the focus became, that's why they created the teen courts or followed the model that had been done in other states so that there would be someone else helping other than the traditional court system with these kids to help get them back in line. So that's that's what we do. So that's why you get them first offense. And hopefully, you know, you can teach them some things to keep them from reoffending. Lehman says there are currently about 16 other teen courts being run in the state of West Virginia. The number has declined because of the pandemic and inconsistent funding. I know when I first started, I tried to contact all the other coordinators across the state, and most of the programs had closed because there's not funding in the budget through the Supreme Court to support these programs. We were very fortunate here in Jefferson County that the United Way, the Eastern Panhandle, gave us the seed money to get started. And the first coordinator had each municipality put a $5 fee on every ticket in the county. So that gets paid directly to teen court into our coffers. And that's what funds us now. What am I on this case? I don't have you down, but I thought you were on the prosecution. I don't remember. All right. We're going to talk for a few minutes so everybody gets in here. Everybody turn on your cameras so we can see everybody. We have That's Rhonda Lehman running a rehearsal for Jay's teen court case. Teen court is virtual now via Zoom. And if you thought having a dozen teenagers in the same room is chaotic, Try having a dozen of them on a Zoom call. We meet virtually every week. We discuss each case. You know, every week we're prepping a new case. And then usually the following week we're having the hearing. The students are the attorneys. They are the jurors. It's a great learning, you know, opportunity for all the kids involved in teen court because they learn how to public speak. They learn how to think on their feet. It it just makes them more aware of things. And public speaking is hard for everybody. So when we were in the courtroom, I mean, we, we were in a real courtroom when we did this before COVID. In fact, we just graduated our first attorney from my first group of kids, volunteers, when I first started in 2013. And he graduated WVU Law and now lives in Pittsburgh and, and working for a big firm. And, and we have a couple other in the pipeline that, that will graduate this year as well. So, you know, we've absolutely seen that side of things, which is wonderful. Layman starts off this practice session by asking the kids how summer has been. Did you go anywhere fun? Are people still wearing masks? Then she goes over the details of the case with Jay's defense attorney. M has been a volunteer for four years, one of the longest volunteers in this teen court. But she still seems really shy at first. You've had a chance to look at the report. I forgot what it was about. It's in your email. Yeah, I know. I just got to find it. She was pulled over with an adult male in the car. Oh, yeah, that's right. I remember reading it. We don't talk about it outside of this. so That's right. You can't. can't talk to her about it at school. (laughs) The questioning is a little slow at first, and Layman has to help M navigate her way through it. So you got to start with the very basics. The jury doesn't know anything about the story. So the first question should be, were you living at home? I guess you can start with that. Um, you brought up the conditions, which is good. You need to go further with how do you feel when you stop taking your medicine, which she told you that. You can do it year four. I know you got it. And as I see this teen court thing that you're describing, I keep thinking, well, maybe one of the attorneys is, you know, one of the kids. School is easy for them and they get great grades and, and they're popular. 
And here I have to come and sit before a court behind and, and that's run by, and I may be prosecuted by a kid who I detest. You're smiling as I say that, but I mean, is, is that dynamic going on sometimes here in teen court? It has, but that's exactly the thing we teach them around. I mean, at some point you have to learn people are people doesn't matter where they fall in the pecking order. And we don't have pecking orders in teen court. I don't allow it. I don't allow any bullying. I mean, if they want to fight with each other, you do it in the courtroom with your words, the way you're, you know, as an adult would. You, you're not going to be trading blows in the bathroom or any of that sort of thing. We're teaching them life skills. So we don't allow the pecking order thing. And yes, we have definitely had the students who, you know, the the gentleman that just graduated this year from law school was the quarterback of the football team, straight A student headed for WVU. But it also worked on his humanity. And that's what it teaches all of the kids, that they're equals, that they're not, oh, that kid in study hall that we don't talk to. We don't allow that sort of thing at all. One thing I was curious about While teen court teaches kids new skills, what about the kids who are on trial? Is this really helping them? Is teen court effective? Well, the stats, I mean, keeping up, because I work at the Jefferson Day Report Center, I sort of see who is being arrested. The Day Report Center is where folks um, can get early release from jail or prison, or when they're on parole or probation, they have to actually check in here every day. There's drug screening, drug testing that is done. I, I pay close attention to those things because I do see some parents of some of my juveniles in teen court here at the Day Report Center. And I hopefully don't see any of my teen court kids here. So far in the six years I've worked here, I've had one who I had in teen court and then had also here at the Day Report Center. Is the goal of the teen court program to decrease the number of juveniles in the juvenile justice system? Absolutely. You know, hopefully we get them in seventh grade, like the other gentleman I referenced, and we turn them around. I mean, that young man, once he had his hearing and his sentence, he said, Miss Rhonda, can I keep coming to teen court because I don't want to get in trouble again? I don't like it. I didn't like making my mom sad. You know, that sort of thing. And he stayed with me all the way through high school as an attorney. And I still see him around town, you know, at different places that he works. And there's always a big hug. And, you know, two of his brothers are in jail for life for a murder, you know. And he never will be. I can say that. After the teen court practice session ended, I spent a few minutes talking to Jay about the process. You say that you're you're nervous about this. What is the outcome you're hoping to come from from this teen court proceeding? Well, I hope for the case to go good. And as soon as this is done and over with, I'm going to be going to Mountaineer Challenge and spend five months there, get my high school diploma and GED, and then I'll be on my way back home to get my own place and get a job again and Probably most likely work on college because I want to go to Oxford. Are you relieved that that you are here having young people who are your peers hearing this case as opposed to being in front of a, an adult judge with a prosecutor, an adult prosecutor, an adult jury? Definitely. It definitely makes my anxiety a little better because knowing there's other teenagers in here, it's like it's so much easier to say it and then not feel like I'm being like told, Oh no, you're wrong about this. Like you're still in the wrong and everything else. But at the same time, the adults in here help too. After this session was over, Layman says she checked in with Jay. Jay wants to go to the Mountaineer challenge Academy. It's an Academy that helps at risk teens get their high school equivalency degree. So Jay needs to resolve her case quickly. If she has any charges pending, she won't be accepted into the academy. She said, oh, I really liked it. You know, I'm looking forward to next week. And since then, her mother has asked me if I will be her mentor when she's at the Mountaineer Challenge. So that means I would go up and visit her when they're allowed to have visitors, take her out for a meal, you know, just make sure she's doing all right. She she needs those positive mentor-type relationships in her life to keep her on track. We have the biggest pipeline from school to prison in the nation as well in West Virginia when they talk about kids that maybe receive benefits all their lives, you know, never really leaving that system. 
So obviously we have to fix what's going on in between. You know, the group homes, the kids are removed from the homes. You know, right now in Jefferson County, we're hard pressed to get guardians to take kids when they're removed from an abusive situation. So the whole system needs help. I thought it was a good trial, everybody. Let me go put my judge hat back on. All right. Jury is I back. also uh, sat in on Jay's trial and anxiously awaited the verdict from the jury. All right. Do we have a unanimous verdict? Yes. Go ahead and read it. 30 hours of community service, six terms on the jury, and the mandatory 750 word essay. Thank you all for participating in Jefferson County Teen Court. We are now adjourned. The participants from Teen Court have one final message for Jay before she goes off to the Mountaineer Challenge Academy. We don't have any class together. We see each other when we get on our buses. Um, But if you have anything, I know what it's like to be a teenager and have some issues. If you ever just need somebody to talk to who can understand what's going on, you can get my number from If you ever need me, just let me know. I'm just a text away. You can text me whenever you want. You've been listening to Us and Them. Our team for this episode was me, Trey Kay, Samantha Gatzik, and Kate Smith. Special thanks to Judge Tom Ewing, Rhonda Lehman, Jared Mitchell, Louis Mitchell, Anya Slepian from the Mountain State Spotlight, and the teens from the Jefferson County Teen Court. Michael Lipton and Tristan Lozow wrote and performed the Us and Them show music. Mark Lerner designed our logo. Lelena Price helps us with images for the web. The marvelous people at PRX and West Virginia Public Broadcasting make us and them possible. So do grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the West Virginia Humanities Council, and the CRC Foundation. Us and Them was originally developed with assistance from the Mentorship Program at AIR, the Association of Independence in Radio. We'll see you next time on Us and Them. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.